Episode 325, the show in which Dr. Mai Pham disagrees with three of my value-based care premises. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. First of all, a shout out to all of you listeners who have shared this show with colleagues and listservs. Really appreciate it. It's because of you and your efforts to share that Relentless Health Value maintains its spot as one of the top podcasts reaching healthcare executives. Executives who take the insights shared by our guests to drive actual change and transformation across our industry. So thank you. Leaving a rating and or a review on iTunes is also the bomb and really helps our RHV team stay motivated and keep it going. Weekly shows take a ton of work. Feedback is super appreciated. On to the topic this week. Who has read that white paper put out in February by the University of Pennsylvania, specifically Penn's Leonard Davis Institute for Health Economics? It's called The Future of Value-Based Payment, a Roadmap to 2030. I mentioned this paper last week, too. So if you still haven't read it, go back after the show and, and take a look. There's links in the show notes. As with every interesting white paper, while you're reading it, you start thinking of more questions. That's why I was thrilled to get a chance to speak with my fam, MDMPH. She is one of the paper's authors, a physician, and a trained health services researcher. Dr. Pham is a former chief innovation officer at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She also spent time at Anthem doing value-based care work for the enterprise on a national level. Further, she's the parent of an autistic child and founded the Institute for Exceptional Care to transform healthcare for people with IDD, meaning intellectual developmental disabilities, which I'll get to in a second. Here's some highlights from my discussion with Dr. Pham. Number one. Markets get distorted when insane quantities of dollars rush in. I'm thinking about Medicare Advantage and all of its attendant suppliers right now. Think about all of the amazing brain power captivated by figuring out how to upcode at scale, which, by the way, only a minority of the time corresponds to actual spend. Dr. Pham has some words on this. Number two, attaining value-based care results and adoption has a big problem. As a policymaker, you can't just keep trying to sweeten the value-based care pot. You don't want to plow even more money into the system. So at a certain point, we all have to get real and realize that for the cost-driving entities in this country, those IDNs with huge market clout, to get on the VBC bandwagon, value-based care probably has to be a mandate. And it also will mean making FFS fee-for-service much less attractive. Thirdly, and here's something I never considered, commercial prices drive up Medicare prices. You have hospital systems pointing to growing disparities between commercial rates when they negotiate for higher Medicare rates, when the hospital systems themselves created those deltas with their private sector negotiations. Lastly, we chat national versus local healthcare reform and about indie doctors and the why behind consolidation. It aligns quite a bit, our conversation today, with the insights from the show last week with Nicole Bradbury and Kelly Conroy, episode 324. The last six minutes of this podcast is Dr. Pham's insight about the scope and impact of not caring adequately for people with neurodevelopmental disabilities. 
We're talking about somewhere between 10 and 16 million people, as Dr. Pham notes, you know, for perspective. That's the number of new cancer cases each year. Collectively, we spend as a country somewhere between 1 and 2% of the GDP all in on this patient population. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Mai Pham, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks so much, Stacey. It's great to be here. If we're talking about value-based care in its broadest sense, one of the promises of value-based care is that it reconnects clinical care on one side and then social determinants of health and the, the payments that are necessary in order to dare I say, fix them on the other. And and value-based care is supposed to kind of bring them all together. What are the nuances there, if any? Like, where do we want to start this conversation? I can go big picture just so that I'm transparent about philosophically where I come from. And we can also talk about the mechanics of it. What do you need to have done the first decade? What do you need to do the second decade? I think about the total resources in the system and what we want to get out of it. We want to get good health out of it. We certainly don't want to be in the place where we are now, where life expectancy in America has started to plateau and to actually go down for people in midlife. That's a terrible place to be for the amount of money that we're spending. It kind of should generate a what are we doing here kind of moment. I think that for the first 10 years of experimentation with value-based payment and value-based care, it was right in order to generate momentum and get as much participation as possible that we talk about the counterfactual being here, here's my, here's how well I'm doing business-wise in current state. And in order for value-based care to be attractive, you have to make it more attractive than my current business case. That made sense in the beginning. But it's not sustainable because we can't actually generate value if we never take money out of the system. I start to think of it as, look, we've been talking about volume and we've been talking about payment for outcomes. Maybe we also need to start talking about prices because what generates total spend is volume times price. It's not clear to me how much more we're going to get out of only focusing on volume and appropriateness as opposed to also tackling price. When you leave yourself open to tackling prices, now you open up a whole world of possibilities in terms of how you could redirect resources, right? If you're simply paying less per unit of service, suddenly it may seem a lot more doable to tackle social drivers of health while sitting at a clinical care organization. We're talking practically about, okay, what types of, I'm going to assume that you're thinking some sort of value-based model. But, you know, obviously there's been a bunch of different flavors of of, of value-based care historically. And and if we're thinking that we're going to evolve and learn from experiments past and try to get better and better and better, most of the value-based types of care models have netted, I'm going to say, sort of disappointing cost savings. So it might be said, and 
probably can be said that patient outcomes and experience got better. But could you summarize the learnings thus far, which I know was in a white paper that you worked on at UPenn? So first of all, I want to acknowledge that we really had to distill down a a lot of recommendations into that paper. So we left quite a number of very good recommendations on the cutting room floor. I think we've learned a number of things. I think we've learned that not all providers are the same. Let's start with that. When we talk about specific payment arrangements, generating savings or not, you're really evaluating it across a program. Within those programs, you have high performers and you have people who didn't perform as well. And then you have people who have never participated in value-based care. So what we've learned is that you can't treat all providers the same. For the providers who have been resistant and will continue to be resistant, there is a case to be made for mandating that they participate. For providers who have been in it and performed in good faith, there is a case to be made that you need to offer them a healthier business model, a healthier business case to keep them in the game because they have generated value, and you can't afford to have market leaders like that drop out. So that's one lesson learned. We've also learned that you can't put everything on the shoulders of just primary care and not rope in the rest of the delivery system and expect real change. Primary care simply does not have the market leverage to do that all on its own. Another lesson is that we have been wringing our hands about racial disparities in healthcare, other disparities in healthcare, urban rural divides, but we haven't really invested in making that better other than to track the phenomenon. It's time to stop tracking the phenomenon and actually pay for change. That is a doable thing, but it's no longer tenable to say we're afraid of something going wrong so we won't try it because not trying it has not produced very good results. There are a lot of other things to consider like the fact that many of these models have been judged against a quote unquote control state that may well be contaminated because of spillover effects from the many, many, many both public and private sector programs going on. It's very difficult to isolate the effect of one program because your control group may not be in an ACO, but they might be in a medical home program or they might be in a private sector ACO and you don't know it. So I think we've also had hard lessons learned about program evaluations. But I would also offer, just to bring it back to an earlier point I made about prices, I would also bring it back to the reality that one lesson not captured in the LDI report that I feel strongly about is that we haven't done our best to actually make the alternative to value-based payment as bad as it could be. If you're talking about motivating people and they have two options, current state or value-based payment, you can try to make value-based payment more attractive, but at some point you really quickly you hit a wall because you don't want to put more money into the system. Well, your other option is to make the current state worse, make fee-for-service far less attractive. And that really has not been done, not with any verve, I would say. And I think that that's where the opportunity is. So for me, yes, there are good rationales for thinking about alternative revenue streams like per member per month, partial or full capitation, bundle payments. But at least as important, if not more important, are the prices that underlie each of those structures. If you offer capitation at a price we can't sustain and afford, where will that get you? So those are some of the lessons learned, Stacey. 
I'm going to ask you about how that relates to Medicare Advantage in, in a second. But I kind of wanted to go through your list a little bit more carefully here. The first thing that you said was actually mandate involvement. You know, like there's no other option than to participate in some of these value-based models, which kind of goes hand in hand with the last thing you said. FFS should be incredibly unattractive because if people are judging what they do by the size of the carrot, then we're going to be at 26% of GDP. <laughs> it was seemingly any day now, right? Because the, the pie always has to get bigger if, if it's just a matter of increasingly creating additional rewards. Do you have any thoughts relative to what that mandatory involvement looks like, especially for like specialists? What do you think the path forward is there? I'm a very pragmatic person. And so my head tends to go toward where's the highest yield. And to my mind, the highest yield are the largest health systems that tend to have must have status in the markets and that are pressuring private sector prices continually upward, which then paradoxically has an upward pricing pressure effect on Medicare prices, believe it or not, because health systems point to the growing disparities between Medicare unit prices and commercial unit prices. And they say to Congress, see, CMS should push up Medicare unit prices, when the reality is they created that gap through their private sector negotiations. Those are the players that I would focus on. It's not that I don't think there's a role for value-based payment to engage large swaths of specialists. I do. I think that episode-based payments, I think longitudinal chronic care bundles can very well have meaningful impact. But the, the higher yield is in these large, powerful, price-driven systems. Those are the ones that policymakers should really focus on. So you walk into New York Presbyterian or UPMC or Johns Hopkins, you know, let's just any of them. And you say, what? Oh, I mean, you can say, I mean, there are any number of policy options, right? And I'm, I'm agnostic here. I haven't rank ordered these at all. But for example, you can simply mandate by X year, if you have not voluntarily participated in an ACO program, you will. Like we will, we will send you your attribution list and, and we will consider you in this program. You'll have two years to figure it out and then you're going to go to downside risk. That's one option. Another option is to hold other policy levers over their heads, right? You'd say, if you are not in a value-based care program, you get more rack audits. Another option is to think about helping to, to mute the increases in private sector prices, which starts to hem those systems in, right? So it's a question of thinking broadly, holistically, what are all the potential pressure points that we can bring to bear on the entities that are driving the most significant percentage increases in healthcare spending? It's hospitals, it's drugs. These are factual issues. If we're thinking about this relative to Medicare Advantage, you look at some of these financial statements of some of these MA plans. I just saw something that said from an insurance carrier perspective, Medicare Advantage is now five times more profitable or something than, in, than the entirety of their commercial business lines. 
Obviously, there is money to be made on the insurance side too. There have been frequent talks about upcoding and all kinds of stuff that these entities are learning how to use to their advantage. How does that fit into this mix? Because what you don't want to have happen is that basically we're just moving money around, that the hospitals no longer are making the money because the insurance carriers are. (laughs) How do you avoid that? Completely agree. And by the way, they're coming from different pots of money when it flows through MA plans. But I completely agree that there has been tremendous business opportunity in Medicare Advantage, not to the benefit of the trust funds. There was a recent blogosphere back and forth between MedPAC and AHIP, where MedPAC walked us through the data, showing us the graph of the spend line per beneficiary risk-adjusted in MA relative to fee-for-service in Medicare over the, the history of MA. If you took the area under that curve, Billions of dollars went out the door that might have produced slightly better quality outcomes, but certainly did not produce greater value for the money spent. And so, yes, that is a a ginormous gaping source of vulnerability for both Medicare and for healthcare generally, because all kinds of market distortions get created when there's that much profit to be made somewhere. I personally always get very nervous when I see a flood of venture capital flowing in any one given direction in healthcare. It generally doesn't bode well, and there's just been a ton of investment in new MA offerings to continually generate new revenues through risk coding, which is kind of engineered into the system, both in the way that the risk scores are taken into account in the bidding process, as well as in the way that prices are set. It's a tremendous vulnerability for the country. And by the way, I'm not saying that health plans shouldn't make a profit, just like I'm not saying that hospitals shouldn't have positive margin. I just, as a citizen, I got to ask, how much is enough? Definitely. How much is enough? That is probably a pivotal question. But how do you, you know, if you get rid of upcoding, then you wind up potentially, the way that I'm understanding it, exacerbating disparities in care because then you get rampant cherry picking and lemon dropping, right? But if you enable unchecked upcoding, how do you control for this? So we have lots of tools to guard against cherry picking and lemon dropping. I also want to point out that when the business case becomes thin enough, Players who aren't in it for the right reasons will leave the market, which would be okay. So my fantasy has always been that CMS can develop or somebody can develop a black box machine learning driven risk adjustment algorithm that no one can see into, not even the payer. It would very much level the playing field, assuming that it was developed correctly, appropriately, and you used unbiased data. But that's the kind of system and extreme solution that I think starts to sound almost necessary given the state of things and the rate of acceleration in upcoding. So people may not have noticed that CMS had put out a request for, I think it was a challenge grant maybe. I forget precisely what kind of award they put out. And they recently announced a couple of winners. They were asking for artificial intelligence-driven approaches to predicting health outcomes, which I believe is just the first shadow approach, the first step that you take in thinking about artificial intelligence-driven risk adjustment. I also want the audience to understand, it's not like we're talking about replacing a really 
superlative gold standard. The majority of the most commonly used risk adjustment approaches today produce a correlation with actual spend of only like 0.2. This is the best we can do. This is how we're deciding how we're going to spend, you know, a trillion dollars each year. Surely we can do better. And by the way, the winner of that CMS AI contest was Closed Loop AI. And Andrew I from Closed Loop AI was on the show maybe last year. So if anyone is interested in in hearing from him and all that they're up to, for sure, go back and listen to that. But absolutely, sometimes I, I, I think we might have a crisis of uh, imagination here where we're so caught up in our not so great benchmarks that we can put a rover on Mars, but it's tough for us to conceive of what reasonable next steps forward are relative to this industry. Stacy, consider the other kinds of opportunity cost here. We have entire micro industries <laughs> created to support upcoding of risk scores and, and any number of other not entirely constructive activities. Imagine what all that brain power could be doing to, I don't know, take your pick, say, predict what a young adult with autism might need. Right? There's so many problems in healthcare we haven't solved. Remember that JAMA report about plateauing life expectancy. Really? This is our claim? The first OECD country to slide backwards in life expectancy. But we're really proud of the micro industries that we've created to support these less than constructive behaviors. Although interestingly, say that you're some revenue cycle management company, it's really easy to make a business case for yourself because there's money there. Whereas sometimes I see that the things that really need to get done, one of the reasons why they are not being done is because there is no business case. No one is willing to support it or fund it. And I could see that that could become increasingly a problem that's exacerbated as we take money out of the system. If the goal is to remove dollars, then is it something that a capitalist market like it's possible for the invisible hand to do its thing to chase smaller revenue opportunities. Well, I don't concede that they will be, that they have to be that much smaller. We can probably find a way to sustain healthcare spending, I don't know, 15% of GDP, somewhat higher than what other OECD countries, I'm not talking about putting healthcare into poverty. And so it's not just about taking dollars away from certain subsectors. It's about reallocating some of those dollars. I will point to President Biden proposing to spend $400 billion on home and community-based services. That's new money. That's a policy decision to make that investment. That's a, a deliberate decision to reallocate investment in a certain direction. There's nothing hardwired into the system that prevents us from doing that. It's a matter of political will. And is it a sure thing that the money's not necessarily going to be additive? If we put $400 million into preventing or ameliorating some of these social determinants of health, then do we take four hundred grand out of acute care? Or the intent is to measure it moving forward because that's a pretty valid hypothesis. Yeah, I doubt it will ever be one for one in that way. Policymaking is just so much messier than that. But I can imagine some, you know, rational experiments to say, okay, we may put net in some more, but we may reap the rewards for that 
in 10, 15 years, much longer than the lifespan of a CMMI model evaluation, we, the country, may reap the benefits of that in such a way that it makes it worth it for the government at state, federal levels to have made that bet and to bring the private sector along through incentives, through adjusted pricing, both up and down in various ways. It requires a plan. It requires a vision. And the concern is that policymaking itself tends to be siloed. It's not about being big brother. It's trying to be rational because, of course, there are elections every four years and the same team might not be able to carry through all of its decisions. But for whatever stretch of time you have available to you, can you not micro-engineer the system, but at least make rational decisions at a high level that cut across the silos and say, yeah, there's, there's a cohesive structure to this, a cohesive theory of action that if we manage prices this way, this will allow us to make, yes, net positive, but modest net positive investments over there. And that in turn, we expect to generate yields by X year, blah, 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 that will generate you know, a more productive workforce and uh, less demand on our public safety nets. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing, that there's a larger context here than just, you know, healthcare in air quotes, because what is the value of a healthy population? It's exactly what you just said, that we have a more productive workforce, that the economy expands. Running counter to that, though, is that healthcare is 20% of the GDP. Many people are gainfully employed, potentially doing things which are a little bit less of value. But if all of those people get laid off, then we have to make sure that there is a way to move them into more productive pursuits. Still in healthcare? I don't know, question mark. I don't buy the premise, Stacey. I don't. Because I think this is about paying some people in healthcare modestly less than they're currently being paid now. I don't think we need to fire the radiology techs or the nursing assistants. I think that there are providers who are making well over a million dollars a year. They don't absolutely need to. I think there are executives. I was one of them who made a lot of money each year. I don't think they need to make quite as much. They can be perfectly comfortable and still in the one, two percent but maybe not quite as much. This is what we're talking about. In healthcare, most of the costs are driven by fixed costs. It is not largely driven by volume. I don't think we're talking about purging healthcare. I think we're talking about putting healthcare on a bit of a diet. The CEO of pick an institution is making as much as like 150 PCPs or something. So Yeah, and, and also we are hugely invested. The other part of fixed costs is the physical plant. I have strode as a health insurance executive, I have strode too many times across clinical campuses with beautiful glass-walled skywalks and helipads, not for emergency evacuations, but for private paying customers. There is the, the physical plant in healthcare in this country is like very few other OECD countries. And we collectively pay for that. There's been a lot of talk about the localization of healthcare and how each community has different needs and wants. And a lot of the things that we've talked about, and correct me if I'm wrong, we've talked about a number of things here that have more of a national scale. So how do you reconcile the need for us to reform healthcare nationally, but the idea that when health changes, it changes zip code by zip code? I don't really see as much conflict as I think may be worrying about. 
First of all, there are lots of elements you need to build in a payment program that are just hugely expensive to do. It took NCQA 30 years and God knows how many millions of dollars to generate all the quality metrics that they did. Does every community really want to reproduce that for themselves? I doubt it. If you're talking about how you do benchmarking, how you set your ACO targets, whether you you emphasize certain kinds of specialty procedures or not in this program or that program, yeah, those things can be local, but they're just adaptations of concepts that are floating around. And by the way, National payers, both public and private, borrow from local experiments all the time. It's all kind of part of one ecosystem. When you want to talk about setting goals, that can make sense absolutely to do on a community level. And there may be specific areas of need that you need to tailor more for a given community, like Opioid use may be a really big factor in one community and housing insecurity may be in another community. Totally doable, but you have general concepts in terms of, for example, financial accountability mechanisms or performance measurement that are generalizable. You can tailor them, you can dial things up and down. But the underlying structures, I say, thank God every community didn't need to invent what an ACO was because that that was a lot of work, man. (laughs) And it was hugely expensive. We wouldn't want people to have to do that. So enabling a model where there can be a foundational aspect, which is created nationally that can underpin and support local initiatives that meet local goals is what I'm understanding you saying. Absolutely. Just one last question, which I need to ask because it's going to be at the top of everyone's mind here. Much has been said about value-based care, but one of the big repeating refrains, it takes a lot of infrastructure and administrative chops to pull off. So it has driven consolidation. It has driven inadvertently indies going out of business just because they can't, they don't have this infrastructure that's necessary. What's the evolution here? I, I reject that premise too. <laughs> I love it. Let's be, let's be super crisp. <laughs> Value-based care is not what has driven consolidation. Consolidation was happening rip-roaring all by itself before value-based care. Thank you very much. And it's driven by other factors. It's driven by a desire to build market leverage, to grow your prices. And, and it's not just prices, right? It's, it's to otherwise enrich your relationship with the payers in the land. Value-based care is a very convenient thing to blame, but that is, it is a fig leaf. (laughs) That is not what has driven consolidation. I would challenge you to find any academic expert who has studied consolidation who comes to that conclusion. Is there any advice that you would want to give to an indie doctor then? Because I know there's a lot, many that listen to this show that have been struggling. Yes, I deeply empathize with him. My brother is in private practice as a pulmonologist. You know, he's in a, a moderately sized group, so he does have more resources than a solo practitioner. But I completely empathize. To those folks, I would say you are actually practicing in a much more potentially supportive context than you might have been 10 years ago. There are what I think of as aggregator organizations like Village MD or Alidade, their business model is to congregate independent practitioners, allow them to stay independent, but offer them the wraparound supportive services. It's not quite an MSO because they're not taking care of your core business functions for you, but for all your value-based care work, 
they provide that wraparound of the data analytics and the care management expertise. They will offer resources and processes, coach you. And the best among them, the models that I I think are the most constructive are the ones where those aggregators really only do well when you do well in value-based care, as opposed to relying on your underlying fee schedule, right? When their financial health is tied to your underlying fee schedule, you have built in (laughs) structural ambivalence (laughs) to value-based care. But if their financial well-being is only reliant on your performance in a value-based care contract, then you have synergies. Now suddenly you have the ability to say no to that local health system when they pressure you to join their, their sin or be employed. You have alternatives now that you didn't used to have. In addition to aggregators like that, there are now new venture capital backed, very creative, primary care companies and and specialty care companies in particular that are purposefully trying to attract clinicians interested in value-based care. So will they be larger entities? Yes. Is that, could that be called a form of consolidation? Maybe. Yeah, it's certainly lateral consolidation, but it's, it's not going to be the kind of voracious driver of price increases. So you have more options now. And everybody wants you to succeed. (laughs) Every policymaker wants independent clinicians to succeed. You also have that going for you. Nicole Bradbury and Kelly Conroy were on the show a couple of weeks ago and dig into that point also. So anyone who's interested should go back and listen to that show. Dr. Pham, do you want to just talk a little bit about Institute for Exceptional Care and where people can go for more information? That's very kind of you to ask. Yes, we are at ie-care.org. And general health care has what seems like a very outdated perception of the IDD population. I think general health care assumes that it's a small population and that it's best served by you know, shunting it off to the side over to some specialized group of providers or clinics. The reality is depending on how you count, we're talking about somewhere between 10 and 16 million people, and that number is growing. For perspective, that's the number of new cancer cases each year. It's equivalent to half the number of people with diabetes. And collectively, we spend as a country something between one and 2% of GDP. Now that's all in, that accounts for clinical services, non-clinical services, and lost work productivity. So it's a ginormous problem and we have this outdated view. The other perspective I bring to it as a clinician is this dawned on me, you know, it can't be a niche the same way that diabetes can't be a niche, right? You can't expect a clinician to graduate, never mind get certified in this country unless they understand diabetes because it has implications for every corner of both clinical and healthcare decision making. The same is true of IDD because those underlying conditions affect how you communicate with patients, how you set up your physical plant in your practice setting, the way that you teach self-care, the kinds of collaborators you need in terms of home and community-based providers. It has all these vast implications. It even affects what kind of sedation you might choose, right? How you might perform a blood draw. So the fact the vast majority of clinicians are rarely exposed to it, never mind trained in it, sets us up for what we know to be the case now, which is that the outcomes are horrific 
despite increasing life expectancy, autistic people die 10 years younger than they have to from preventable causes. And people with intellectual disability, I don't know if folks saw, but there's a New England Journal article by John Gleason at Jefferson Health about a month ago showing that ID was the single strongest predictor of COVID infection. And aside from age, the strongest predictor of COVID death. Wow. So let that sink in for a minute because we've been through much of the pandemic now without really talking about this population. And most of us are but one or two degrees of separation away from it among the people that we love or take care of. So there are lots of reasons why IEC believes that there's a moment now, a real moment in time now where we can rally support from interest, from commitments from general health care to bring this population and these issues into the fold to stop pretending that it's a niche. So we're working on things like ways to change cultural norms, generate positive will, ways to amplify demand for all the great training materials that are already out there, ways to improve financing and payment by building foundational elements like performance measurement and risk adjustment and even improving the data because much of this population is not very visible in healthcare data. Screening and documentation are so poor. We really need to solve those problems. And ID stands for intellectual disability, correct? Yes. Dr. Mai Pham, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. It was my pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.